This episode of the CFO Playbook features an interview between Ross McKay, head of partnerships at Saldo, and Paul Cunningham, partner and CFO at Helios Investment Partners. Paul talks about the current state of the market in private equity, changes in finance functions brought about by the global pandemic, and how to build a strong team through authentic and genuine leadership. Each week on the CFO Playbook, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find the link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO Playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Paul, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So, Paul, I'd love to start off with, of course, your experience and, and how you got to where you are today in, in, in the position of CFO. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and, and the path that you've navigated? Yeah, sure. I started off really training as an accountant for you know, no better reason than I didn't know what to do when I was about to leave university. It felt like a way of deferring the decision for at least another three years. And once I qualified, I went through what was probably quite typical at the time, a a series of sort of financial control type jobs in different banks, you know, product control, financial control, that sort of thing. And was reaching the point where I was getting a little bit bored with doing that and was looking around for something else something slightly different to do, but yeah, was actually quite happy where I was, which at the time was with Barclays. And there was a role came up for, it was described as COO within the Barclays sort of private equity business. But, you know, one of the things I think within private equity is the term COO and CFO tend to be synonymous. So, you know, that was really how I got into both the industry I'm currently in, but also into a a role as CFO. And, you know, I think largely by accident. You know, I think at the time I didn't know that much about the industry, but that for me was part of the challenge and what made it interesting. It was something I had no experience of, and didn't know that much about, but a great opportunity to learn. I've been a private equity CFO, I guess, now for 20, 21 years. So how would you describe the role of CFO in private equity? And if you're um, aware of it, like how would that contrast with perhaps this, the role of CFO in a conventional company? In a conventional company, the role of CFO is probably pretty well defined and pretty sort of well bounded in terms of what you're actually responsible for. Within private equity, and you know, it's certainly been true of you know, the firms that I've been sort of CFO for, the role of CFO 
is more by exclusion. Anything that isn't related to making or divesting of um, investments potentially falls in the lap of the CFO. So, you know, it can range from the typical financial aspects through to arranging financing, HR, IT, at times premises, very, very broad remit. I think because of the nature of, of a private equity firm and the desire for people on the whole to do deals, everything else gets pushed in the direction of, a, of the CFO as the other man standing who might be able to deal with the stuff they can't be bothered to do or isn't interesting enough. Yeah, so they're focused on the on the market side of things and, and the deal making and you're you're keeping the ship operating well and pointing in the right direction. Absolutely. Typically within a lot of private equity firms, it is the CFO that just keeps everything on the straight and narrow, keeps keeps everything sort of running, with the exception of the buying and selling of investments. And has that role changed? over the 20 or so years that you've now been doing it? Or does it remain broadly the same as the as your first day? Certainly, if you were to describe the role today or 20 years ago, I'm not sure that the description would be significantly different. But I think the complexity of what falls within that description is what has changed you know, materially. As we have changes in regulation and sort of regulatory reporting requirements, changes, regular and frequent changes in taxation rules, and just the, the general complexity of, for example, how you structure an investment has changed. You're driven by a combination of both regulatory and tax sort of issues. You probably have to be much more nimble now to keep on top of, I guess, the ever-changing um, environment we operate in. And presumably that yeah. means that you need slightly different skills now to succeed than you might have done 20 years ago. I think that's very true. Um, 20 years ago, private equity business was very much sort of cookie cutter. One investment looked very much like another. One fund looked very much like the last fund, and there wasn't a great deal that changed. But now you need to be part lawyer, part accountant, part tax advisor, part regulatory consultant. And I think 20 years ago, that wasn't the case, certainly not to the same extent. And then, of course, being in private equity, this is a fascinating time for the markets and you you and your lengthy career will have seen many different cycles, but this time the change in sentiment in the last six or maybe even seven months has been quite stark. So from someone who's in that uh, in that industry and very much tapped into the capital markets, how, what's your perspective on it today? It's interesting times. The old supposed Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times, was never meant to be a positive. Yeah, I think that's definitely what we're seeing now. Things are particularly um, difficult, but then they have been for the last two or three years. One of the big parts of a private equity CFO is valuing the portfolio. And 
one of my other hats is as chairman of the International Private Equity Valuation Board. It's a body that sets the, the guidelines for how you value all of the investments, which, you know, frankly, makes up 95% of a private equity fund's balance sheet. We have never been so busy as over the last three years, you know, having to give consideration to how, not just how we, but how the whole industry would deal with COVID. And then once that looked like it was clearing, how, as an industry, we would deal with the fallout from Russia, Ukraine, high energy bills, and you know, very much the sort of uncertainty that that has brought with it. That's the biggest problem, is just the uncertainty around what the impact is going to be, you know, not just in the short term, but in the sort of medium and, and longer term. A common theme that came up from CFOs particularly last year, because we were talking about the pandemic more so at that time. Now now we have a, a similar challenge, but different era, was the forecasting. In, in a pandemic where nobody, nobody living had experienced it, really, uh, it's quite difficult to forecast. And it sounds like in, for you, when you're trying to value the portfolio, that is a compounded issue because you're not trying to just forecast one company. You're trying to forecast a multitude of companies across probably a multitude of industries. So it sounds like an, an immensely challenging time when you've got unprecedented circumstances. And to layer on top of that, a multitude of different jurisdictions as well. <laughs> because we focus primarily, the firm I'm currently at, focus primarily on investing into Africa. So that brings with it a whole raft of further issues and complications, particularly with the pandemic, where there really wasn't that much information on how it was hitting different countries across the continent. But even now, the energy prices, the impact of inflation, now maybe for us, not so bad. You know, I think if you're going from sort of low single digit inflation and it's going up two or three or even five points, that's a big deal. If you're starting at sort of 15% inflation and it goes to 18, it's less significant than it might be in some of the developed markets. So you've got those additional complications. It certainly isn't one size fits all. So then how do you tackle that problem? Because again, you said that it's the vast majority of your balance sheet. It's a really core part of the role of CFO. And of course, as you mentioned, there's so much complexity. So how are you approaching that? Very much on a case-by-case basis. You you will have some winners and some losers. So you have to look at each individual company and assess. you You can't look at a country or even necessarily a sector and say, well, that will be affected this way. You need to look at it on a a company-by-company basis and make the assessment according to how that company in that sector, in that country, has been impacted. I think you see that businesses in, for example, education were worst affected by the pandemic 
whereas businesses in fintech did extremely well. You've also got the complexities. If companies are doing significantly worse than you'd anticipated, is that structural or is it um, just a temporary blip? And the same for those that do that do better. The example I always use for that one is if you had a, a toilet roll manufacturer at the start of pandemic, they would have been you know, doing extraordinarily well. But ultimately, it would have leveled out because people weren't using more. They were just stockpiling. Maybe taking a step back and thinking about, of course, it's not just you that's performing this particular task on the forecasting across your portfolio and the estimating the value. I'm sure you've got a very talented team that's supporting you. What's your approach then um, to to building and leading a team as a CFO? Because, of course, now I'm sure you've been doing this for a long time and you've done it many times. Have you got any rules of thumb for how best to build that strong finance team? I think it's all down to the... um the individuals that you select for the team. So a very rigorous interview process is probably the key. But in terms of leading the team, yeah, I think one of the key things that I find is that I don't ask anyone in my team to do something that I have never done myself in the past or don't sometimes do you know, myself at the moment, um, I tend to work that whoever is best placed at a particular point in time should be the one that does any specific task. And, you know, even if that is a, a menial task, but I've got a spare 15, 20 minutes, then I'm not too proud to do it myself. And that sort of approach helps the team. They know that, A, if you're asking them to do something that you probably had to do it yourself in the past, or if I'm asking them to do it, it's because I'm not in a position to do it myself at the moment. Just need to make sure that they feel important in what they do, no matter how trivial a task it might be that you're asking them. And what about when you were applying that, of course, during the pandemic? And I presume, as with many in kind of private equity, it was very much an office-based uh, environment and people were in one location more often than not. And then with the pandemic, it tended to be remote first, if not remote always. And then and then it's led to more of a hybrid approach afterwards. For some finance teams, that's been a huge opportunity. Other ones, it's, it's been very challenging, especially during things like close or, or key reporting periods. But so how have you approached leading your team through that type of environment? It was difficult. What I found or what we found to be the most difficult was where we had actually recruited people during lockdown. So, you know, we had a couple of cases where there were team members who had probably been on board about six months before I actually met them in person. They were interviewed remotely. They started remotely. They probably, as I said, spent about six months working remotely. Those sort of situations were probably the most difficult. For team members who had been there pre-pandemic and so actually knew the culture, knew the way 
we worked as a team, knew the way I operated as a CFO, it was much easier. What it's proven to me is that remote working can work, but that face-to-face -face interaction is critical to enable remote working to work. And so many have suggested the same thing where even companies that, and we've had a few CFOs and founders on the podcast that are in remote first organizations, it's becoming increasingly common. But even those people who use that as a business strategy and a culture um, an approach to building culture will emphasize the importance of connecting in person and the power of that for building trust. Also, like creating like a, a common sense of purpose is very hard to do that if you're just on video conference. So I think that that's probably a lesson, not just for finance, but for all. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's sort of very true. Um, yeah, we recently had our corporate offsite a week before last um, a significant portion of the time there, and this was across the whole team from all different jurisdictions, a lot of the time was spent identifying where, as a firm, we think we've probably lost some of our corporate culture and what we can do to try and regain that. Um, because it is very difficult for people coming in and not spending much time in the office to actually pick up the culture of the organization that they have joined. And, you know, I think on a more personal note, I know some members of my team who did join during um, one of the multiple lockdowns said subsequently that, you know, I think they found me quite intimidating on sort of teams or just communicating by email. But once they met me and realized you know, how I operate, then nothing like as intimidating. If you only ever see someone on a small screen, then you have no way of really getting a feel for that individual. Did that type of feedback surprise you? Did it lead to maybe you reflecting on whether you would change anything to help alleviate that? Because it'll probably happen less so now, but may still happen somewhat in the future, depending on the role and location. It's something that I think I took note of, and I hope that I never have to recruit someone 100% remotely and don't get the opportunity very early on to deal with them on a face-to-face -face basis. But should it arise, then I will need to think about maybe being a little fluffier in some of my early communications. And so with Helios and talking about the team and the organization, of course, you're based in the UK, but you're investing all across Africa. So do you have your team entirely based in the UK or is it distributed across lots of locations? No, my team is entirely UK based. It tends to be the investment team and the portfolio managers who are distributed elsewhere. Which then makes that a lot simpler because, of course, your team should be just in the UK, but the investment team, that would be much harder because they may well be far flung. And of course, in the continent where you're investing. Exactly, exactly. But you could probably save some costs by having some of the team you know, in other locations. But I think you lose too much from that sort of the face to face. And I think that's that's one thing that this has taught us is that the the face-to-face -face is, uh, is so critical. Yeah, it doesn't have to be five days a week, but there needs to be some of it. 
what approach have you do- adopted at the moment at Helios? We're currently, people should be aiming for a minimum of three days a week in the office. We're looking at to, whether extending that to four days, but allowing the flexibility on probably a Friday. So, you know, I'd expect very few people to be in on a Friday. I think the problem with a three-day is that you maybe don't get to spend much time, you know, with some people if your days, you know, it could be that only one day coincides with others. So at least if if everyone's aiming for four day and you have the, the flexibility on a fixed day, plus additional flexibility around you know, when people start, when people leave. You know, I think a lot of people have enjoyed the fact that they can take their kids to school. That's fine. Still take your kids to school, come in later. That's not the problem. Sometimes it's also about not just the number of days, but the synchronizing those days. And to your point about people wanting flexibility about when they start and when they finish, it's quite incredible that the huge social experiment we've just had, that breaking all of these conventions that we've worked with for, in some cases, like years and decades, in many ways, it's led to much more flexibility, not just within finance, but across all teams. I'll be honest, pre-pandemic, if someone said, oh, I need to work from home on this particular day, you always used to automatically assume they were taking a day off, didn't want to book it as vacation, and would answer a few emails sporadically across the day to make it look like they were working. And, you know, I think to an extent that probably was the reality. But, you know, now it's proven that we, you know, that people can work effectively from home. Actually, in some instances, work more effectively from home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know from personal experience, it, it took me a while to get my home set up right. But once I did, you know, I'm probably more efficient at home than I am in the office. But you know, we've moved from that, the stigma that working from home is really skiving to it being an effective alternative. Um, mm. But you know, recognizing now that you lose some of the uh, some of the culture if people are working from home too much, and if anything, I was a little bit surprised at the strength of feeling from some of the more junior members of the whole team, not just the finance team, but the whole team, mm-hmm. about how working from home was sort of eroding some of the uh, the corporate culture. Because, you know, I think everyone reads about how, you know, more millennials or whatever generation you want to call them won't take a job if there isn't the sort of working from home option. But what we're finding from that sort of age group within the firm is they like being in the office because that's how they learn is from your people who've already been through it. And you know, most of them want to learn. It's an industry where you pick up your knowledge through working with people who've been there, done it before. 
And I think that that learning, but through osmosis is so powerful, isn't it? That they want to develop and want to connect. And for example, people like you, you'll have little time for one-to-ones and coffees on on video conference, but you actually can quite easily or far more easily fit that in if you happen to be in the office. Yeah. If someone just wants to chat about a particular issue, they may think, well, it's not worth setting up a Teams call for, but they'll pop in and say, you've got two minutes just to talk about this. And you know, that's what you lose, is the ability for, as you're walking down the corridor, oh, I've got a quick question for you. Those things that you would never pick up the phone or set up a meeting, Teams or Zoom or whatever meeting, to discuss. It would just, oh, next time I see him, I might ask that. So then switching gears slightly, one other theme that we touch on very frequently with uh, with our guests is the use of technology and, and how the use of technology has changed and is changing the way that finance teams work and, of course, the way that CFOs lead. How have you viewed um, that increasing use of technology within finance, again, over the 20 or so years that you've been a CFO? Yeah, I'm not sure I would sort of agree that it has increased significantly over the last 20 years. Yeah, I think when I first started out in my career, one of my roles was actually working within the finance department, designing sort of digital solutions to manual processes. So, you know, I think that move towards automation and digitalization has always been there within the finance function. It's just sort of progresses over time. Yeah, it's something that you can't just, oh, over the next two years, we're going to digitalize everything, every manual process. It needs to be constantly evolving. You know, what I've seen is just that sort of natural evolution. But yeah, I think it's natural. Whenever you start a new process, you probably are going to start it using something like Excel. And then when the process is embedded into your daily, weekly, or monthly routine, then you start to think about, well, is there a way we can do this better and more efficiently? And yeah, I don't think that has, that approach has really changed. Maybe some of the tools available to us have changed, but you know, the idea that you take a manual or an Excel-driven process and you find a way to do it better, that hasn't changed. And so in terms of automation within your team and that digitization that you mentioned, um, what are the processes that you and your team are focused on trying to automate and digitize so that you've got presumably more more free time to focus on higher value and higher order problems? Yeah, I, I guess we have or have had a number of sort of very complex reporting tools, you know, built in Excel that we've been over over the last few years, moving into more sort of bespoke solutions. Reporting on the value of investments used to be quite a manual process, but then we've implemented a system to replace a very long-winded sort of spreadsheet solution. For our year-end evaluations, we have, again, a hugely complex, um, spreadsheet that reported on 
by individual across the whole firm on how they had performed against certain KPIs. Um, that was one of those things that yeah, every time you had someone join or leave, there was always the risk of breaking the spreadsheet. And so, again, we had a bespoke solution to do that. But, I mean, most of these things are probably things that would say, certainly save me a lot of time personally. In terms of the team, the one thing that I think has saved the most significant amount of finance team time is digitizing the uh, expense processing system. You know, it sounds quite trivial. Um, it was one of those things that um, I think people kept saying, oh, we've got this wonderful tool that will help you deal with expenses. And they, oh no, it works fine, it works fine. Then I realized just how much couple of members of the team, how much time they were spending on processing their individual's expenses, how much time everyone across the firm was spending completing, filling in the, the expense sheets and then submitting them. You know, now you've got an app where you take a picture of the receipt, upload it and it's done. Or even better, if you take a, an Uber, you forward the Uber receipt to the app and it creates your expense. It has saved significant amount of, um, of manpower. What we did do though was use some of the early lockdown time to implement a number of these sort of solutions because it was, I think it was very much a case yeah, I was guilty of this, as were other members of my team. It's that people were too busy to actually find the time to ultimately save themselves time. But lockdowns, people did find that they had a bit more time. Um, and so we got two or three implementations done in over the course of 2020 that probably wouldn't have happened yeah, without lockdown, that just gave the impetus to get things done. And I think it also meant people had a little bit of time to spend on the, the testing. And it is fascinating, as you said, how you can take something that is seemingly like a core process, you wouldn't think much about it, like expenses. But then actually, once you dig into it a little bit further, there's an immense level of pain that you just assume is par for the course, is just something that has always been that way. And so therefore, it should remain that way. Uh, that's very much the case. But that's just the way you do expense. It probably hadn't changed for 20 odd years. You know, certainly in my experience, you would fill in the form and attach your receipts to it and then give it to someone else to review, someone else to authorise, someone else then to ultimately pay it. And now it's all digital, it's all on an app. And I can do the final authorization on a train or waiting at an airport, um, you know, it, which you can't do if you've got a sort of stack of expense forms. 
Yeah, well, exactly. The fact that it's paper rather than digital is one part. But I remember many moons ago when I was in consulting, I used to work for Accenture. And Accenture, of course, was huge back then, even larger now. But they had people going all over the country and the world visiting clients. And so you can just imagine the number of expenses related to trains, planes, automobiles, uh, and of course, hotels. And then at the every two weeks, you would file it and it would be hours and hours of your time. And you just, you would bank that in as like, like an afternoon of everybody's time would be down to doing exactly what you described, which is just immensely painful and frustrating. But it was just something you had to do for your job. So the, the fact that you, we can alleviate pains like that, is, it can be um, immensely liberating. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that if someone is travelling... They just take a picture of the receipt and then bin it. So you don't come back from your travels with a wallet full of, you know, two inches worth of receipts. You've then got to sit down and go through the pain of um, putting onto a spreadsheet. Exactly that. Paul, as we are approaching the end of the interview, I often like to ask our guests, and, and I would love to ask you the same thing, for those that are listening that are aspiring CFOs, perhaps even their new CFOs, uh, and they're just getting used to the, the responsibilities and the role, what advice would you give to them uh, so that they can be successful and effective in the role? One of the most important bits of advice is never be too important to do anything because it helps keep you grounded. It also helps with building a team don't feel that you're now your cfo you can't do your own photocopying for example i still do the occasional um, cash reconciliation if i fancy you know, half an hour of mindless work it actually pays dividends with both you understanding what your team is doing and your team feeling that you've got their back if you will do that sort of the more menial tasks. And I, I think that's sort of true really across across the board. You, you have to remain humble. Make the rest of it up as you go along. <laughs> Great advice. Uh, and Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. You're very welcome. Thank you. One last thing. We want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.